Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, folks. I would like to introduce myself. My name is Payal. And I am a traveler who also loves to meet people. And I think a blend of both is where this concept of melting pot has come about. In my Melting Pot series, I will be talking to lots of inspiring people from different parts of the world and also from different cultures, whom I meet during all my travels. The common factor between these folks will be the desire to follow their passion and make it a way of life. So step into this melting pot and enjoy the chats. Hi listeners, welcome back to another weekly melting pot episode, a series of conversations with some absolutely extraordinary people who have followed their dreams and they have reached a stage in their lives through sheer grit and determination. I am so privileged to have Danish Husseini as my guest today. Danish is an actor, he's a theater director, he's a poet and a storyteller. He runs his own theater company, which is called the Hoshruba Repertory in Mumbai, and he has pioneered the revival of Dastan Goi, an art form of Urdu storytelling, which is becoming a dying art. As you can see, he is an absolute stalwart and an artist with so, so, so much talent. Thank you for joining me today, Danish. And oh, sharing thank you so much, <laughs> And you're going to be sharing your journey with my worldwide listeners. Oh, I'm delighted. To <laughs> thank you so much. So, as I do with all my other guests, there has to be a story behind the stories. So, where did all of this begin? Because I have read somewhere that you are an MBA and you were a banker mm -hmm. before you stepped into the world of theater and cinema and all of that. So, where did it mm -hmm. all begin for you? Uh, well, I think, I think, you know, like I said in one interview of mine, I basically wanted to be the Superman, <laughs> uh, you know, someone who wear his pants, his underpants on his, on his pants. So that in daytime, I'm a boring banker, I'm Clark Kent, but at nighttime, I fly high and I do, you know, special things. And it all began uh, when I was at the bank. I just felt all these years I've never really thought of who I want to be, what I want to do. And now I am here in this institution doing a very mediocre job, which is completely dissatisfactory. I have no interest uh, in it. And of, of, also, I didn't like the corporate culture. Uh, there was a lot of psychophrenzy. There was a lot of, you know, 
grapevine, backstabbing. So it, it was in all a very disappointing experience. And I wanted to add color to my life, but I had no special talent. So I started thinking, how should I spend my evenings? And then it stuck me that I did enjoy uh, doing mimicry or, uh, you know, doing odd skits when I was in school and in college. So maybe I can do theater. And that's when I started looking out for who should I go and work with. Because not only I had never done theater, I had not, I'd never followed theater. I think till that time, I may have seen only one or two plays uh, in my life. And at that time, Barry John, British uh, theater director, actor who came to India late 1960s, early 70s. And when he came here, he just decided to settle here and do theater here. And he had become uh, a household name in late 90s. Uh, with two of his students becoming superstars. You know, one was Shah Rukh Khan and another was Manoj Bajpai. So I, I also caught on to his name and I called him and he said, do you have any experience? I said, no. He said, you will have to do like a three-month acting workshop. And I said, fine. And that's it. This was 98 November, December. I went and I joined Barry's uh, acting school, did a three-month three part-time workshop because I was still working in bank at that time. And three months later, I said, now what? And he said, go out, give audition, perform. But I said, no, I want to do theater with you. So he said, then wait for me to do a play. And luckily, three months later, his theater company at that time, he had a theater company called TAG, Theater Action Group. Uh, they were doing a Vijay Tendulkar play, uh, a very famous Vijay Tendulkar play called Khamosh uh, Adalat Jari, Silence the Court is in Progress uh, in Hindi. And I auditioned and I got one pivotal character. And May 1999 was the first time when I stepped on the stage as an actor. What was that experience like? Were you, when you stepped, I mean, you obviously you did the workshops and you were doing a lot of rehearsals for the play before you actually stepped onto the stage. So what was, I mean, maybe you don't remember it, but you probably do because it must have been, like you said, a pivotal turning point in your life. So what was that feeling like? Right. Uh, The first uh, learning that came to me was that acting is a craft. It's, uh, It's not as easy as it looks, you know, because in India, everybody feeds on cinema and on politics and on cricket. So everybody in this country feels they're a natural cricketer, they're a natural politician and they're natural actors. But when I started workshopping with Barry, this is the first learning I had. It's a craft. You need to own it. You need to acquire it. You need to understand it. It's not instinctive. It's not like switch on and switch off. There is a lot more thinking that has to go in the process of acting. And you have to really create your your whole character and the whole performance before it could be effectively delivered. So that was the first learning I had. I I thoroughly, immensely enjoyed the process. But the thing which really did the flip for me, which which made me leave my banking career and become an actor, and I've mentioned that in various interviews also, is that I was so mediocre and average and a median kind of a person, you know, like really median, like half the people above me, half the people down me in my classroom performances, in my examination, that I had never been in spotlight. I'd never, I've, I'd never had a pat on my back. I, I was just somebody in the crowd. I, I just lived uh, on the fringe. But when I stepped on stage and when I performed, 
for the first time i got some appreciation in my life you know people walked up to me in the green room or whenever they met me outside they would say hey you were really great in that play we saw your performance or oh, you were fantastic you were stellar and for the first time i i really started feeling good about it i i felt there is something that i can really do you know all these three decades i've really been mediocre and average but now it seems like there is something some evocation some profession where when i do it i naturally get praise and appreciation and and maybe this is what i should do this maybe this is what i should pursue so i i keep telling people that the power of appreciation is a very powerful thing you know, do not ignore it if you if you think somebody is really doing good if you think somebody is excelling at their work if you think somebody is making a difference for their performance no matter what field they are go and appreciate that do tell people that because it encourages them to do that more. yeah you're absolutely right there because i think it it also gives the person that much of yes encouragement confidence and belief in themselves that yes they do have the ability and and they can move forward with it so yeah that's absolutely spot on and we all go through phases in our lives where we feel like we are not you know we are like you mentioned medium so and then you need that little something that sort of turns things around and yeah i know i absolutely get that i have read and correct me if i'm wrong that you then decided to move your entire life from are you originally from delhi but well, i have i'm originally from uttar pradesh a small district Okay. Ghazipur which is uh, Ghazipur is near Banaras the holy city uh, but i've never lived there i've lived all my life in delhi because my both my parents were academics they were professors at delhi university so they, they taught at the university and i grew up around the campus uh, okay. so in that sense you can say i'm i'm a delhi boy you know i've grown up i was i've brought up in delhi i wasn't born there because at the time of delivery my mom went back to her parents house which was in the village so i was just born in uttar pradesh but uh, i've literally lived educated grown up uh, all my life in delhi so yes delhi was home delhi was home so then you actually uprooted yourself and your life and you moved to mumbai and i have read somewhere that the first couple of years were not a good experience for you i don't necessarily want you to talk about you know because that's in the past so i'd rather yeah. you you focus more on all the fascinating things that you've been doing but if you yeah. could just just a little indication of what you felt when you actually decided to make this very dramatic move from one city to to mumbai if you could just touch upon that a little bit and then uh, we can because i think it would also be interesting for listeners who are um, aspiring actors or aspiring theater actors or directors or whatever it may be who've kind of moved away from the, their comfort zone and or are trying to move away from their comfort zone but don't want to take the risk so maybe hearing your experience will in some way be an encouragement and an inspiration Okay so so 2002 was uh, when i resigned from the banking sector i've been working in banks for five and a half years to that time 
And in 2002, I took the plunge and I decided I won't be a full-time actor. But when I, when I took the plunge, I did not have any game plan. I never thought I would do cinema. I thought I would just, my dream was if I could form a repertory uh, theater company and maybe just do plays like Habib Tanvir and travel with my theater company all across the globe and just do plays one after another. That was really my dream when I resigned. But I had no wherewithal. I, I had not gone to a drama school. I had not gone to a film school. I was not trained as a formal actor. I did not know how institutionally things work. Because being a theater repertory owner or a theater repertory in charge is in some sense entrepreneurial. Uh, you have to be an entrepreneur. It's not just about the creative part of it, but it's also the logistics of running it, of pitching it, of trying to get more work, trying to see that you know, your productions are being uh, invited uh, everywhere. And there is a steady stream of money coming in, which it shows that the repertory is living and is sustaining itself. And I had no idea how to do that. So I started initially by only acting in other people's productions. My first, in, my first instinct was that let me understand how does this thing work? How do people create productions? How do they create plays? What elements are involved in creating a play? Uh, how do you manage this whole business of creating a play and running it? And I was quite lucky that within three, four years, I was able to work with two of the best theater directors in the country. Uh, every time I would be performing in a play somewhere, somebody would notice me and would say, would you like to come and work in my production? And I would immediately jump on that opportunity. So I did not stagnate with one repertory or one theater company or one director within a quick period of three four years i worked with a whole plethora of theater directors with varying styles with varying content with uh, with so much to offer in their individual styles and but still i was just another theater that actor you know i was just one of the many theater actors struggling there was nothing any special about me and then around 2005 2006 storytelling project began last Sunday. And though it was not started by me, but within four or five months, I got involved with it. And then uh, it just took off. You know, it just, we just came alive on the performance map of the country. Somehow everybody was talking about us. Somehow everybody thought that, oh, this is something really novel that has happened in theater. And here are these two guys who are performing stories on stage, really archaic stories, really archaic language. Nobody understands the language. It's so difficult that even the Urdu Wallas don't get it. But <laughs> the performances are a delight. You know, when they when they perform, somehow it seems you get everything. Somehow you enjoy the story, you enjoy the, the what's happening in the story, you enjoy the performance. And the performances started becoming a rage. And um, that really put me on the performance map. That really put me on the map as an actor. Suddenly people knew. I didn't have to make an introduction. You know, when I would go somewhere... And I would tell who I am. They would, oh, you're the guy who does the storytelling. And I said, yes. So that made a lot of things easy for me. But then what happened that it was becoming a very niche thing. You know, I was getting more and more into storytelling. And I was not really, I was kind of getting disconnected with proscenium theater. And after three, four years, five years, uh, it was all about storytelling. And I was being seen only as a storyteller and not as an actor. And, uh, you know, when you are performing storytelling, you essentially remain yourself. You don't become a character. And even if you become a character, it's quite representational. It's not method acting or it's not like you, you dive into the character because 
essentially you're the storyteller, you're the sutradhar, uh, you're the narrator. So even if you acquire a character in the telling of a story, it's representational and you just switch out of it the moment you come back to the narration. So you don't live the character, you don't breathe the character in that and you continue being yourself. And after the, after the point, I felt that, no, I also, I also need to go back. I felt that uh, I should not neglect theater, you know. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I should do storytelling, but I should also pursue theater. And that's when I decided to open the theater company, the Hoshoba Repertory, which was 2011, 2012. And by that time, I had done enough theater and storytelling to understand how to mount a production, how to mount a theater play. So 2012 is really, after 13 years of just being an actor, I, I took on the mantle of being a director and a producer. And in 2012, um, March, I remember I did my first play, my repertory company did the first play, which was directed by me. And it was um, Samuel Beckett's play, The Crap's Last Day. And then immediately two months later, I did another production, uh, an Ira Lewis play, a very celebrated play, Chinese Coffee, which was Al Pacino's comeback play on Broadway. So, so then the storytelling and the theater, they both started, they both start uh, working in tandem. You know, I was either performing on stage or I was performing the storytelling. And in this, in this uh, period, cinema also happened, you know. A couple of uh, movie offers came to me and I performed in those movies and my performances got appreciated. So by that time, cinema also had taken off. And, but by the time it was 2013, 2014, I again felt a certain stagnation. Uh, I felt, I felt I'm not growing in storytelling. I, I felt uh, the atmosphere was not conducive anymore and the production house that I was working. And, and I, I felt the need to do more cinema. I, I thought, Maybe I have neglected camera for long and maybe I should give more attention to camera and maybe I should do more cinema work. And uh, the best place for all that to do is really uh, Mumbai. So in 2014, I again uprooted myself for the second time. Uh, the first time was when I decided to leave the bank job and become an actor. The second time was 2014 when I decided to pack my bags and, and leave Delhi and, and come to Bombay. And I was also going through my personal issues at that time. So it was a very, uh, you know, depressing kind of, kind of a phase in my life. And then when I came, in hindsight, I think it was much better because uh, there was a falling out with my storytelling partner, especially when he got uh, incriminated in a case, uh, in a rape case. And uh, it just so happened that I became the chief witness on that because I was the first one to get to know about the incident. Uh, and that became like a prolonged court case with that the grapevine and, and half the people decided to be on this side, half the people decided to be on, on, the, on the other side. And it just became too toxic an environment. And, and, and I just moved to Bombay. And so, you know, I was still trying to find my roots in the city and the atmosphere was becoming toxic. And all that resulted in, uh, in a very dark phase, in a dark, in a dark period in my life. But I, uh, I did two things to kind of make sure that I don't really slide down. One was that I really took to poetry. And uh, I love poetry. I love performing poetry. I love memorizing poetry. And I really, really took to poetry. Sorry, Danish, do you also write poetry? 
Yes, I do. I wow. do. I mean, I used to write earlier also, but okay. then I became more active writing uh, when I shifted to Mumbai. And uh, and so I, I really took support of poetry. I started memorizing great Urdu poets from Ghalib to Mir to Nurmim Rashid to Faz Ahmed Faz. Uh, uh, and, you know, I also started performing poetry along with this lovely friend of mine, Denzel Smith, who is also a great actor. And uh, where I perform in Urdu and Hindi and Denzel performs Indian English poets and we have a musician who collaborates with us and jams with us and we are uh, reciting and performing these poems. So it's more like a spoken word band that we have. And then the other thing that I did that even though in my dark, Phase, I never gave up on work. I would go to rehearsals. I would keep directing my plays. I would keep acting in other people's plays. So when things started becoming easier for me after the period of two years, it was not that I wasted those two years. It was not that I didn't do anything. There was work to show in those two years. I had produced plays. I had directed plays. I had acted in other people's plays. I had worked in some odd movie or odd series. I had I'd written something and, and that really kept me going. So when, you know, when things started clearing up and by end of 2016, 2017, I started coming into a better frame of mind. There was a body of work behind and it just propelled me to do more work. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some, and, you know, obviously those years were, as you mentioned, they were dark years, but as you've also mentioned that you took all the positives from those years rather than reflecting on what did not go right. You, right. you looked more towards what were the good things that you got out of it. And, and then, you know, the rest is history. So coming back to a little bit more about, uh, because it is quite, as you mentioned yourself, a very uh, unique, or traditional form of storytelling. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing it correctly. So it's, is it Dastan Goi or is this? Yeah, correct, correct. Absolutely okay. correct. Dastan Goi. Okay. Yeah. Dastan Goi. Because in the introduction, I'm not sure whether I said Dastan Goi or I pronounced it differently. A little bit about Dastan Goi. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It is in in Urdu, as you mentioned, which is from very classic. So even people who speak Urdu may not get the nuances of it. But how far back does it go? And a little bit of history that will add, you know, 
flavor to to listeners who know absolutely nothing about it, including myself. So I think it'll be an interesting learning for all of us. Yeah, sure, sure. You're listening to a fusion of stories recounted for the first time ever by some fascinating people from across the globe with me, Payo, on this very unique and special podcast series, Melting Pot. Dastan Gui is actually the art of reciting long romance epics. Dastan is a long romance epic, something that told over over several sittings, you know, you cannot finish a dastan in one telling. So uh, it goes on over several sittings, like 1001 nights, that's a dastan. And, and uh, so the word, that's what dastan means. And go, the word go in Persian means to speak. So dastan goi is like portmanteau. It basically means the telling of a long romance epic. But dastan goi kind of got associated with one particular story, and that is the adventures of Amir Hamza. And the historical figure, Amir Hamza, was the uncle of Prophet Muhammad. And he was also the first commander of the Islamic army. And uh, and he died, uh, he was martyred in 625 AD uh, in a battlefield. But, you know, he, his stories of valor and courage kind of became folklore and as you know islam expanded and went to various other parts of the world uh, these stories of his valor and courage kind of traveled along them and at some point these stories uh, tripped into mythology and fantasy you know something like what happened with king arthur so so they became a whole franchise of fantastical storytellings where Amir Hamza is this prince who's fighting jinns and, and demons and devils and ghostly figures and all kind of underworld figures uh, for the cause of truth. And then he's encountering fairies and, and chimeras and all kind of characters. Uh, so it became a, a, a very huge franchise of fan- fantasy stories. And uh, by the time uh, we were in medieval times, which is we are looking at uh, 15th century, 16th century, the, the whole art of Dastan Goy, the whole art of telling the adventures of Amir Hamza, had expanded uh, from southern Europe to northern Africa to Central Asia to Arab world to Persia to India, South Asia, and going right up to Southeast Asia and China. These stories were being performed everywhere. In India, these stories basically came with the Mughal king. Babur uh, had a storyteller in his entourage whose name was Takaltu Khan. And Takaltu Khan had performed in the courts of the first two Safavid empires, uh, emperors in Persia. And the Safavid empire was the biggest empire in Central Asia at that time, uh, in the Middle East at that time. So it, everyone drew legitimacy from Safavid empire in Iran because that was the, the biggest empire. So Takaltu Khan had performed for the Safavid emperor and then came with Baba to India. And then he stayed back and he used to recite adventures of Amir Hamza and along with him came other storytellers. And then the most prominent of them was Takaltu Khan's son, whose name was Darbar Khan. So Darbar Khan was the chief uh, storyteller in Akbar's court and Akbar was so fascinated by these stories that he commissioned the largest uh, Mughal art project uh, in the Mughal history. Uh, mm-hmm. where these stories were painted and illustrated on canvases three feet by three feet. Um, and there were some 1,200 folios like that painted wow. over a period of 15 years. 
these stories were kind of, they were like a prototype for a television. They were possibly put up in a wooden frame and displayed in front of the king. And the painting had text telling you like a key as to what is all there depicted in the painting. And the storyteller would stand behind the painting, recite the events in the painting to the, to the emperor. So the emperor would not see the storyteller, but would see the visual feed of the painting and would get the audio feed of the storyteller. And as one depiction would end, uh, the you know the painting would slide out, and the next painting would slide in. So, so fascinating! Was, you, wow. you can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine what it was. Yeah. But but by the time, so so that was a time when a whole bunch of Iranian storytellers came to India because Mughal Empire was flourishing, and Mughal Empire was at its zenith, which is Jahangir's uh, reign, perhaps the richest empire in the world. So, you know, it was possibly like what America was in 70s, 80s, 90s, when everybody wanted to go there, have an American visa. I think that's what uh, the Mughal Empire was in Jahangir's reign. Everybody in the world wanted to come here because this was the richest empire. So all these storytellers came from various parts of the world to fancy their chances and to, to kind of acquire wealth here. And, and then slowly they all became from Persian storytellers to Urdu storytellers because they, they started acquiring local flavor and local languages, uh, languages and they started adding those elements to, the, uh, to a very Persian storytelling franchise. I mean, um, so there was a Turkish way of telling the story, there was an Iranian way of telling the story, and there was an Indian way of telling the story. And then the Indian way started becoming more popular, uh, It was the Urdu way of telling. So there was basically, you know, uh, the styles that were popular, Tastan Goyu, there was a Turkish style of telling those stories, and there was a Persian style Persian of telling style. those stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But by the time these storytellers came and they, you know, they stayed back in this country, they kind of became Indian, they started introducing local language and the local flavors to the, to the stories, and the stories started acquiring a very Indian nature to themselves, a very Indian texture to themselves. So over a period of another 100, 200 years, these stories became completely Indian, you know. They, they became Urdu stories and the landscape, the culture, the, the texture of the stories was possibly what a North Indian story would be. Uh, or the clothes that were being spoken of, the food and the cuisine that was being spoken of, um, the, the, the flora and the fauna that was being described in the, in the stories was becoming increasingly Indian, you know, it's becoming an Indian story. And by 19th century, these stories, these franchises had become so popular, uh, these storytelling franchises, that almost any noble, any wealthy person, any person of any repute had at least one storyteller in their entourage. It was, it was kind of thought of prestigious to have a storyteller in your entourage. And, and uh, when Fort William College opened in Calcutta, in 1801, the East India Company thought that maybe the best way to give language instructions to East India Company officers is through Dastan, is to by, by acquainting them to these things. So they started the employing storytellers at Port William College with the intention that through the means of these stories, these Dastans, the storytellers would acquaint the British officers uh, to Indian culture and Indian language. And that's when these stories started coming into print. They moved from oral into the written uh, traditions. 
And by the time the end of 19th century we come, these stories have become so popular that we had a, a great publisher in Lucknow whose name was Munshi Naval Kishore, who used to run a press called Naval Kishore Press. He commissioned the all major storytellers in Lucknow and said, why don't you write, why don't you write these stories and I will publish them. And that's what happened. They wrote and these stories got published. So between 1883 and 1917, 46 volumes of Dastane Amir Hamza, The Adventures of Amir Hamza came out from wow. our Kishore Press in Lucknow. Wow. And that, that each volume was like a thousand page long. So that makes The Adventures of Amir Hamza the longest running story in the world. In no other language, in no other culture, we have the same set of characters and a story running into 46,000 pages. So it became truly a, a literary marvel uh, of this country. And, and uh, then these post-1917, these uh, stories, these 46 volumes started going into reprint. So then somebody thought of why not customizing them and and making a more Hindu version of these stories. So they commissioned Pandit uh, Devki Nandan Khatri in Banaras, and he immediately uh, adapted these things into an Indian version where Amir Hamza becomes Chandrakanta. And then we have 11 volumes of Chandrakanta coming out. And that again became a huge uh, fantasy franchise in itself. But you know, 20th century was a tumultuous two world wars, Indian uh, national independence movement, technology coming in, radio, television, cinema mainly. And more than that, you know, the Russian Revolution took place, which resulted in a whole new movement in art. And one of the offshoot of that movement was the progressive writers movement in India, where all the major storytellers and writers and poets came together. And the whole idea was that art should be for a social cause and art cannot be for itself which changed the way the whole landscape changed in terms of literature. Short story and novel became the more prominent form of literature and fantasy and romance epic kind of got relegated. Um, and these stories kind of were lost and the whole art form was lost and people started forgetting about it. Till some 15 years back, we came on the scene and we started telling the same stories again. Wow, that's amazing. But I think at least we can say that someone had the foresight to put all these stories on, like put pen to paper. And, and yeah. so at least, you know, we ha you or whoever has been able to preserve these stories and it's, it's become like a form of literature now. So yeah, completely. I, I mean, the credit is completely Munshi Naval Kishore. Yeah, who, yeah. Yeah. Who decided yeah. that these stories should be published. Yeah. And uh, because of him, these stories have been saved and, and we have an access to these stories. Yeah, that is so incredible. And it's just also, it's so amazing how you, along with whoever was with you, has been able to, to revive it to some extent. I'm not sure if these, this form of storytelling is still something which is prevalent, even if it's on a smaller scale, in Turkey and in Iran, or in, I would assume, also Central Asia, because... Well, uh, the, they are still, because coffee houses and, and tea houses were where these stories were being performed. 
and Iran and Turkey still have coffee houses. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but the nature of performance has changed. I mean, yeah. the Indian storytelling has a different form, complete different form to the way uh, the Turkish and the Iranian storytellers are performing. Yeah, I guess then you adapt to the culture, right, of of the the place. So yeah, that makes yeah. so for you. I mean, you clearly have experience in theater, in poetry, in cinema, and in Dastan Goi. So, which do you think all these forms of art are essentially storytelling? But in obviously different, they're different platforms, but. Would you say that all of them are one form or the other of storytelling? It is. Uh, at the root of everything is storytelling. At the root of it is this desire to communicate a narrative which one has to the other people. So, so when you really strip down everything to its bare minimum, it is storytelling happening, whether you are creating a poem or whether you're creating a play or whether you're creating cinema or whether you're writing a story or whether you're performing the story or whether you're even having a private conversation or whether even this podcast that we are doing. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, basically right. audiences are hearing my story and they're getting acquainted with my story. So if, if everything is stripped, we do find at the core storytelling. And, and I think that's what the whole storytelling thing did to me. It gave me a certain kind of clarity instead of grappling with four different things, it made me understand that these are just four different cases of what at core I'm doing. And it just gives me a better handle of dealing with these four things. Is it fair if I ask you um, out of these different forms of storytelling that you're associated with, which one is your favorite? You don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but oh, no, 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 no. I'm That's curious. a very fair question, and it's a fair <laughs> question. And uh, I, so I, I enjoy all of it. You know, I enjoy writing poetry. I enjoy performing poetry. I enjoy acting in front of camera, uh, whether it be a film or whether it be a web series. Uh, I enjoy um, being a character on stage, and I also enjoy telling stories. But I think I enjoy most when I'm actually telling stories straight to an audience, you know, where when there's a live performance and I'm sitting on stage and I'm, I'm telling a story and the audience is all there completely caught in this whole web of story that I've created. And that is really a joy to watch them completely immerse themselves in the story and walk along with me. Uh, in that story and discover things as I'm discovering as a storyteller. That is a great joy. So it's like a live uh, reaction. Yeah, um, because you, you know, yeah. You know, yeah, because when you do cinema, it, it, you're a bit removed from the audience. Yeah, you know? yeah. When you're performing, so your performance is not being consumed simultaneously. You know, that's why most actors are not thrilled when their films are coming out, because for them, that project is over one year back and they've moved on to do something else. So the world is responding delightfully. Oh, your film is out and we are watching that film. But the actor is slightly sanctified, is slightly like, oh, yes, fine. Because yeah. they've actually moved on. They, they, they've possibly done two more projects after that film. So, so there is this distance that comes between your performance and your audience's consumption. Similarly with poetry, you know, you write and somebody reads it much, much later, unless the poetry is being performed live. Uh, but in theater, 
uh, when you're performing on stage or when or in storytelling when you're performing on stage the consumption is instant the feedback is instant. the pleasure of creating and the pleasure of consuming and enjoying it is simultaneous and uh, the audiences when they are in a live setting they are not passively consuming it they are also active collaborators it is happening with their collaboration that's why you would hear actors say oh today's show was not good because the audience was not responding well you know and today's show was brilliant because the audience was so ecstatic and joyful so it is it is a collaborative exercise uh, mm-hmm. a live performance is never about the performers it is about the performers and the audiences and that's why the nature of a live performance changes from each performance to each performance so some day you have great shows and some days you may not have great shows though the content is the same the performance is the same the other paraphernalia that you're using is the same but there is one strong variable which is the audience that has changed and that really results in a whole different flavor to the performance every time a live performance goes on stage yeah. so that's yeah. that's what makes it exciting yeah and it's instant gratification as well you don't have to instant gratification i think is 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 a, is an offshoot you know it's like a battery when you're trying to reach to fossil fuel instant gratification is really not the thing the real yeah, main no, thing I, yeah, is yeah, the audience's yeah. pleasure yeah you know your audience, their reaction is the real pleasure the joy that you and if that joy is spreading and is happening that's when your gratification also starts coming in so it's more like a byproduct but the foremost thing is really the audience and how they respond to a performance yeah wow that's yeah that's that's so that's so true as well would you before we before i sort of i'm very reluctant to end this this conversation but i i i guess i have to so before i do that would is is there something that you have written like a poem which you may want to share with the audience yeah sure if something just comes at the top of your mind and something that is meaningful for you and to you i i'd really like you to share that this is a poem which i wrote recently it's called uh, the spectacle of a joyous heart at its luminous best at its luminous best the heart a spinning top pirouettes one leg up sparks joy in every soul bursts into the sky seizes hold of every passerby at its luminous best the heart a spinning top pirouettes one leg up sparks joy in every soul bursts into the sky seizes hold of every passerby but the thrill is the search for whether the axis will bend or strut or come to rest or whether it will fall and bite it wow and uh, there is this uh, one more so uh, this is uh, not the full poem but it's it's a stanza out of a longer poem and i think i wrote this poem after my dad's demise so it's called the conjurer of meaning and here's this one stanza which i particularly like I felt the same when I locked gaze with dad I felt the same when I locked gaze with dad minutes before he died I plunged into his eye pool tailing the disappearing light chasing the myth of my father through veins and nerves through his brain's crevices till we reached the cranium 
Just when he was to step into another dimension, he turned swiftly and said, chase your own fiction. Wow. I can repeat that for our audiences. Yeah. I felt the same. I felt the same when I locked gaze with dad minutes before he died. I plunged into his eye pool, tailing the disappearing light, chasing the myth of my father through veins and nerves, through his brain's crevices, till we reached the cranium. Just when he was to step into another dimension, he turned swiftly and said, chase your own fiction. That's beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you Thank you so much, Danish. I can't tell you how much I've been enriched with this conversation and I'm sure my listeners have as well. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so very much. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. What an absolutely amazing conversation with Danish. He is so soft-spoken and he's super knowledgeable. I learned so much on Dastan Goi, an art form I really knew very little about. He definitely inspires. Hope you've enjoyed listening to my conversation with Danish. For weekly stories of people who have excelled in their craft and made it their lives mission, do continue listening to Melting Pot with me, Pyle.